This is the What Now Podcast. Just knowing that the components of the church and of the gospel, the church as a structure and the gospel and religion in general, there is so much overlap between that and well-being and these major theories of well-being. It is massive and it's huge. We've just scratched the surface on looking at these things. This is the What Now Podcast, where we discuss sensitive topics surrounding cultural norms in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I am Mary Alice Hatch, your host. The guests I have chosen and the questions asked are intended to facilitate honest and respectful discussions that will uplift, inspire, and invite more understanding, hope, and healing for our church community. Note, to ensure that the conversations and topics discussed can remain focused and unfiltered, the production of this podcast has been personally funded by myself as a public service for you and every listener. I invite you to join me in creating positive change by simply sharing this podcast with family and friends. Thank you. Join me as I speak with Robin Johnson, positive psychology specialist, about her research, which shows the intersections of the restored gospel of Christ and positive psychology. Robin shares how the common theories of well-being overlap with the Church of Jesus Christ, leading to an increase in positivity and happiness and to more positive life outcomes. She also shares the fundamental truths behind why religion has lasted so long and the value that a faith tradition offers. Today, I'm here with Robin Johnson, who received her Master's in Applied Positive Psychology from University of Pennsylvania. The capstone for her master's is titled The Great Plan of Happiness, The Intersections of the Restored Gospel of Christ and Positive Psychology. Welcome, Robin. Hello, I'm so glad to be here. This is the first podcast I've ever been on, and so I hope I don't say something stupid, but I just feel very honored to be here. Well, we're happy to have you. Thank you for taking the time. Wonderful. So this is a really interesting choice for your capstone. What made you decide on this topic? Well, that is a great question. I actually went back to school to get my master's in applied positive psychology, and I was fully intending on doing research on music and its impact on teenage depression and or the the impact of music on children. And when I walked into my first class and opened up my books and opened up the articles, I found myself instantly and continually writing in the margins of my books and the margins of all these articles, Book of Mormon this, Doctrine and Covenants that, for a great price. I mean, in my margins, I was writing Book of Mormon, Church History, DNC, for a great price. And I found myself continually being amazed at how what I was reading overlapped with the gospel and the church structure. So when it came time to finally decide what are you going to do your capstone on, I decided counseling with my advisors and family that I would totally switch gears and I would look at the overlap between the gospel and the church and positive psychology. And my capstone advisor actually then said, why don't we take a few steps back and instead of launching right into your faith tradition, why don't we say why religion in general? How does religion in general help people? Why is it even still around? I mean, we've had atheists ever since the beginning of time. We've had modern day atheists, etc. So why is religion still around? Why, what good can it do? So I then be- began focusing on religion in general. And then I 
narrowed it down into the specifics about the church as an organization and also principles of the gospel. So that's kind of got started. I went to Penn with no intention. It didn't even occur to me to do this. And in fact, some people have said that I was very brave for talking about religion at an Ivy League school. I didn't perceive myself as brave. I just thought I was doing something that I was really interested and passionate about. Another, And also, the year before, someone had done a capstone on Catholicism and youth and how that was beneficial. So I thought, well, if the Catholics do it, then so can the Mormons. So here I am. Yeah, that's right. Step it up. We can talk about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is what we call it now. So in your research at University of Pennsylvania, you discovered many correlations between members' engagement with the Church of Jesus Christ and an increase in happiness and positivity. So can you describe the various theories of well-being and how they overlap with the church and how that leads to more positivity? Yes, absolutely. And I should say, just giving where credit is due, about six or seven years ago, another Mapster, as we call ourselves, someone in, in this master's degree program, actually did a capstone on the church and what people, members of the church and positive psychologists could learn from each other. It was a slightly different angle than mine, but mine wasn't the very first one to be done. So I thought it was important to point that out. And I really apologize. I'm forgetting her name, the person who did it. But anyway, other people had done it as well. So what I did is there are many theories of positive, there are many theories of well-being. Of course, the one that we often ascribe to is the one by Martin Seligman, which he calls PERMA, P-E-R-M-A, and an H was added later by Michelle McQuaid, which stands for health. But PERMA is positive emotions, engagement, relationships, meaning, and accomplishment, and then health. And the notion is, the degree to which we have these components in our life and the degree to which they balance each other out, like one isn't way out of kilter from the others, but they're kind of in balance and supporting each other, we will have greater well-being. Now, other people have proposed other theories. And for example, Richard Ryan and Edward Deasy propose what's called the self-determination theory. And that talks about autonomy, competence, and relatedness. And I'll talk about that a little bit later. But there's other theories, um, the theories of um, inventories of thriving, psychological well-being, um, flourishing across Europe, the mental health continuum. So they have all these different theories. So what I did is I took the top eight theories that were the most researched and the most vetted and the most highly regarded. And I laid them out side by side and made a grid in my capstone. And I compared what are all the components that each theory asserts that you need to have in order to have a rich, full life. And how do they all compare? So for example, oh, and, and then once I did that, I said, okay, out of all these things where they overlap, how does that line up with religion? And for example, every one of them had relationships, that relationships are the most important and the most predictive of our well-being. Uh, they all had some kind of accomplishment or competence. Were we able to do things in life? All but one of them had meaning. Do you have a sense of purpose? Do you have a sense of meaning? Do you have a, a reason to get up in the morning? And so you look at all of these overlapping elements and you say, where does this line up with religion? Well, religion obviously is a great place to find meaning. I mean, a huge, potent 
place to find meaning. It's a wonderful place to develop relationships and find relationships that are supportive through all the facets of life, both the good times and the the hard times. And then you look at accomplishment through faith traditions, we're able to build up our skills, especially within the LDS church, where it's a lay church and we have callings and we just do them and kind of figure it out on the fly. Another thing, and this is interesting in my research, I pointed out that this was an element that was only overtly described or iterated in their theory, and that is a being of service. But being of service is massive in increasing our well-being. And it's almost like the scientists have caught up with grandma. You're unhappy, go do something nice for somebody else. Well, now they've done tons and tons of research on how service has a positive impact. So again, you look at within the faith traditions, you have the capacity to be of service. So that's what's basically that is, you know, what are the theories, what are the commonalities they have and how do they line up with religion and how they line up with our church specifically? Yeah, and that's true. I mean, positive emotions, you know, man is that he might have joy. We believe that. And then we find joy by serving other people. And that's a huge part of our religious faith is we believe in service and we're commanded to serve. Each one of those, like we call them the PERMA pillars, each one of those pillars and the other components definitely relate to well-being. I'll just go ahead and interject here. For example, this is what absolutely grabbed me was Ryan and DC's theory, a self-determination theory. And what they posit is there's, you need to have three components in order to have a rich, full life. Autonomy, competence, and relatedness. Well, that right there is a plan of salvation in a nutshell. Autonomy, we have choice. You know, because of what Eve did in the Garden of Eden and followed by Adam, we have choice. And then competence, we come to earth so our spirits can have a physical body where we can grow and develop and learn. And then relatedness, the whole plan of salvation around our relationships. So when I saw a self-determination series, like, oh my gosh, there's the gospel right there. And the same thing can be said of these other components. They totally overlap. Well, yeah, I mean, relationships, we focus on eternal family relationships. That's a huge component of our faith. Yeah, absolutely. Strengthening the family here and now, um, meaning, like you were saying, the plan of salvation, eternal life with our loved ones, priesthood power to heal and protect us, the guiding influence of the scriptures, they all add major meaning and value to our life. Absolutely. And I'll just throw a few little bits of research here, because I think people like to hear about the research, but... There is a major, it's called a meta-analysis, a meta-study, where they looked at 115 research papers written between 1996 and 2015, and they found a positive relationship between religious belief and the components of life that bring happiness. And another one, Ed Diener is, if anybody in the world of psychology, and especially positive psychology, knows Ed Diener. He recently passed away, but he began studying happiness and satisfaction with life long before Martin Seligman began the official start and birth of positive psychology. And he looked at, I'm not sure what, I'd have to look up to see what year this is, but he looked at, there's, it's called the Religious Beliefs Survey. 
and then the World Values Survey. He looked at 2,000 respondents and found that those that were in the highest belief group also had the highest level of life satisfaction. In another one, this I thought was fascinating, and this could you know kind of jump over to health, but in another study, they wanted to look at what is the impact of going to church, of attending church on a regular basis, what is the impact of that on your health? So they looked at other studies that examined health practices like eating fruits and vegetables, exercising, taking Stanton medication, things like that. And they found that going to church on a regular basis had the same protective factor as eating your fruits and vegetables. And it was higher than statin therapy. And it was stronger than 60% of these other 25 factors. So that is, in the world of statistics, that is huge. And so I know I'm getting really animated here, but to me, this is so exciting. And I wrote this in the very last page of my capstone. And I felt this throughout as I was deciding whether to write about it and then writing about it is I felt like members of the church are sitting at this banquet table, just laden with a feast and they're nibbling on carrot sticks. And it's like, oh my gosh, there is a feast set before you and you're nibbling on carrot sticks. And so since you called me, I've been pondering this and I got to thinking, well, you know what happened? Is that someone snuck in and they put the lids on all these chafing dishes. So we're sitting at this banquet table, nibbling on our carrot sticks, but we can't see fully what is underneath these chafing dishes. And it sometimes is we just take for granted what we have. And so my purpose is to pull the lids off these chafing dishes and see what are these amazing things that we have. And I should say, well, I'll I'll stop talking because you probably have another question. No, no, keep going. You're doing great. But I was going to say that I know I've been talking a lot about the positive benefits of religion. I also think it's extremely important, and this in my research is in this as well, is that there is also a shadow side, the shadow side of religion. And it's what I call when religion goes awry. You look at the Spanish Inquisition, you look at the Jewish pogroms, you look uh, in the modern era, fraudulent televangelists. You look at these, obviously, the heartbreaking stories of people who were abused by their religious leaders and abuse of multiple levels. And it's just heartbreaking. You look at this shadow side of religion. And so I think it's really important to acknowledge that there has been a shadow side to religion and the pain that it has brought those people and how we can ameliorate some of that pain, but at least by acknowledging, yes, this is real and this happened and we're sorry that it happened and how can we make it right? How can we make it better? Another thing that's really important in the research is is how do people perceive God? What is their higher power? And if people hold the notion of an angry God or a God who is just always kind of disappointed in you. And for me, for many years, you're growing up and I was a great kid. Okay. (laughs) I was a great kid. I was the one who, when it was senior skip day and everyone's going to go off and get drunk, 
I plan a place where kids who don't want to drink can go and have fun. And then I drove by the kegger to see, okay, who of my friends needs a ride home? So they're not going to try to drive home drunk. Okay, I was that kind of kid. And I distinctly remember laying on my couch when I was about 18, you know, just kind of the end of high school. And my brother walked through the room and he said, what are you doing? I said, I'm laying here thinking about all of my sins. Okay. <laughs> He's like, what? What are you talking about? Yes. And it's like, now I look back at this and I can just almost weep over that child. Instead of saying, I'm thinking about what a great kid I am and how I've been able to be helpful to people and what a good life I have. Instead, it was that. And it took a lot of therapy. I got in Al-Anon and got into 12-step programs. And so I did a lot of things where now I do not feel that way. I feel like God has my back. God is one of my best friends and Heavenly Father, Heavenly Mother. And Jesus is like this committee up there who are looking after me. And so now I can say to youth or other people, if you're still holding the notion of an angry, vengeful God or just someone who's just kind of always a little disappointed in you, and 12-step programs, like around step one, two, three, where you're trying to find a higher power, um, as in one meeting where I overheard them, them saying, you need to find another higher power. If that's your higher power, you need to find another one. You need to find one who's loving and kind. So I might have digressed here. So Well, it's interesting because some people feel like religion is divisive and it's a bad thing. And if so, then why has religion lasted so long? Well, that's a great question. And Religion can be divisive. It can be divisive. It can be something hurtful. I will say one of the big things that's thrown out is how much violence there has been in the name of religion. And so how can religion be considered good when there's so much violence? And I say, well, look at all of the violence that had nothing to do with religion. I have a major section in my capstone on this. Look at the violence and the lives lost. Look at the Holocaust. Look at Pol Pot in Cambodia. Look at in China, the Great Leap Forward and all these other things. That had nothing to do with religion. In fact, it was specifically anti-religion. And it dwarfed, just completely dwarfed the numbers that were lost through religious violence. Nonetheless, you got to acknowledge it. It happened and it's wrong. It's unfortunate. I mean, it was not unfortunate. It's a horrible word. It was tragedy. But to say that religion is, you shouldn't have religion because of violence. Well, there's significantly more violence that had nothing to do with religion. And to answer your question, why has religion lasted? Well, that has been the question of the ages. Why has religion lasted? And What's interesting, if you look at it from an evolutionary standpoint, things last because they work. So there is something about religion that must work because it has lasted. And that then just, you know, circles us back around into these theories of well-being. Here's all these theories of well-being. Here's how religion dovetails. Another thing I throw in there as well is in prior research, they would say that civilizations created or invented religion. And so religion was like this afterthought that was developed later. Well, now if you look at there's later archaeology, you're going into lower levels of time, so to speak, 
And they're finding the exact opposite is true, that by people coming together in religious ceremonies, that that is what then led to towns and cities and civilization as we know it. And I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. It's been shown that youth who are actively engaged in a faith tradition, they have more positive life outcomes, and that this engagement was causal to those positive life outcomes. Can you speak to that? Oh, absolutely. That's a great question. And this was some major research done by Smith and Denton. I think this book came actually came out in 2004 or 2005. It was a major in-depth study. And it's actually a book called Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. So they interviewed in-depth teenagers from every single type of religion or non-religion. And looking at different types of religions, like the Catholics, the Mormons, different kinds of Protestants, youth who went to church kind of every now and again, and youth who just didn't go at all. And I'm going to quote this here because I think it's so profound. So they said, the differences in life outcomes for actively religious versus non-religious youth were positive and were significant and consistent across every outcome measure examined. So every single thing that they examined in terms of life outcomes, every one of them was positively influenced. Youth who are actively religious, they had a positive life outcome. And what was really crucial is they said, they concluded by saying, we can conclude with confidence that this relationship was directly causal. That means it caused it. Well, let me tell you, social scientists are loath to use the word causal. They never want to say that something causes something else. They were influenced. There is a correlation. There is an association. They use all these other kinds of words and rarely will use the word causal. But here they said, and so what this means, it was the religious activity that caused these outcomes. And what was really fascinating in the last chapter of this book, the youth that they interviewed were, didn't really fully grasp the impact that their religion was having on. They thought it, they felt better, but Sally over there, she doesn't go to church and she seems to be okay. Is it really making any difference in my life? And so they ferreted out nine different components of what being actively part of a religious community did for them. And they put it into three big lumps. And I have this right in front of me. So the first one is having a moral order. And that was having moral directives, having spiritual experiences, and having role models. And then they looked at learned competencies This is really important, especially if you're a member of our church. Learned competencies is huge, what you get. So community and leadership skills, coping skills, cultural capital. Now, this was really fascinating, and this dovetailed with my other research, that social capital is what are the things within society that your relationships and other things in society that can benefit you? And 
there's one major category called bonding capital where you bond with the people that are in your group. Another capital is called bridging capital. And that is where you make relationships with other groups, not just your group, but you make a relationship with other groups. Well, one of the things in my research they found is a thing called status building and status bridging capital. And that is where people who have fewer resources are able to connect with people who have greater resources and through their religious affiliation. So maybe you're out of work, maybe you don't have a job, but you go to state conference and you bump into somebody and say, hey, we're hiring, come on over, give me your resume. So those kinds of things. Um, I'm just going to scoot down here. The other thing is they talked about are social and organizational ties. Well, here's a social capital. I just really talked about that social capital. And then having, he call them extra community links. Are you able to connect with people outside of your community because of your faith tradition and because of your faith experiences, your involvement, I should say. So that's really huge. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, there's a lot of value in religion connected with our communities and our democracy. There's a really wonderful video that Christensen, he's an accomplished business professor at Harvard Business School. He died this last year, but he put together this incredible video where he shared his findings about how religion affects our democracy because religion teaches us values and principles that if lived by result in a better society. So it's been found that when religious communities diminish, there's an increase in crime, broken families, deceit, lack of empathy for those around them. And it results in this corrosion of the moral fiber of our society and potentially challenging our democracy. It's all interconnected. Yeah, absolutely. That is so very, very true. And that goes into where are we being taught to be good people? Well, Hopefully you're being taught at home, but a lot of that now is being directed at the schools, which is not a bad thing. I think it's a great thing that schools are emphasizing character development and things like that. But to be able to have it be emphasized and, and integrated within a faith tradition that is not just mom and dad telling me to be a good person, is a God that I believe in. It's a God that I have faith in that wants me to be a good person, that is helping me be a good person. And and what does good person even mean? How can we tease that out? How can we be of service? How can we have compassion? How can we have empathy? How can we walk in someone else's shoes? I will say, in addition to what you referenced with um, Clayton Christensen, a few years ago, Elder Oaks gave a magnificent speech at Claremont Graduate University in Claremont, California. It's in kind of, it's in the Los Angeles area, but way inland, about an hour, and gave a magnificent address on the value of religion in the public square. And the founders of our country, the notion of separating church and state, that is a a true concept, but the concept was to protect religion from the state so the state could not encroach on religion and allow freedom of religion and that has been kind of turned on its head to say no we don't want religion however i like to point out that the first of the bill of rights the first item listed 
in the first bill is freedom of religion. It is the first thing listed. And I think that's very important because if that is not first, then everything else can crumble. But if that can be solid and people can be respectful of other people's uh, beliefs, then I think that's really where things can really take off. Right. I mean, you make a really good point. There's a lot of value in a faith tradition. And a lot of people are moving away from organized religion right now. And I think for me, my own interpretation is I don't think they really understand the value that it offers enough. Because when you were talking about these major theories of well-being and what they all have in common, and I think some of this younger generational kids are just hearing one or two random things. And then they're like, well, that's crazy. I'm out. I don't want anything to do with this, but they don't realize they're throwing the baby out with the bathwater here. Like there is some amazing value in the faith that we have. And I'm not sure they totally understand that yet. Yeah, I think there's a component of kind of stepping back a little bit. For me, as I've been pondering this with this interview coming up, to me, I think the first thing is to acknowledge that people who are unhappy with the church or who even leave the church to acknowledge that they are in genuine pain. I don't think anyone leaves the church or is just unhappy with the church just for something willy-nilly. I think these are things that they ponder deeply. Maybe they have been hurt. Maybe they feel deceived. Maybe they feel betrayed. Maybe they feel let down. These are all genuine feelings that I believe need to be acknowledged and had some compassion for. And the line of mourn with those who mourn. Can we mourn with those people who are unhappy and leaving the church? Mourn with them because there is a painful process in doing this. And I think that's really, really important to acknowledge. And the next step, I think, and it's, I was at physical rehab earlier this morning getting some work done on my foot. And I had my University of Pennsylvania t-shirt on. Thank you very much. And so we started talking about my degree, the physical therapist, and about how your attitude and your beliefs impact how your approach toward life impacts your physical well-being. And she said also that sometimes when we're in pain, it doesn't mean that there's something wrong. She gave an example, like if, if someone had knee surgery, that there's all kinds of stuff going on inside with your molecules. And I'm not a physician, so I don't know everything, but all these things going on inside to help your leg heal. And some of that causes pain. And she said that people are generally, we are afraid of pain. And so we kind of clench up around it and that makes the pain get worse. But she said, if we can come to realize that pain isn't necessarily that there's something wrong. It could be that this is a part of the process of growth. And then by having less fear, the pain diminishes and the healing gets better. So sometimes we can be afraid to talk to someone who is unhappy about the church or who's left the church. At least I feel sometimes fearful about what might they say, or, you know, can I stand up to what they're saying? Or what if I get swayed or something like that? But instead, if we can set aside that fear and come to a conversation with love and empathy and compassion for the pain that they had been in to get to this place, 
then I think some healing can occur. Yeah, I agree. And you make a good point there. There's some other research you were talking to me about before when we had spoken, and I'd like you to kind of share about the correlation between religious activity and well-being. You referenced an American Communities Project, which studied these LDS enclaves, which are these high concentrations of LDS people based on social media posts on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. And you discovered this correlation between LDS people being some of the happiest people and the most stressed out. So how can LDS people be so happy when they're also the most stressed out? Yeah, this is really interesting. In fact, I'm right now turning open my, I thought I'd, I definitely had bookmarked that in my capstone. So this is really fascinating. There's something going, and it's going on right now. It's called the World Wellbeing Project. And it's where they look at different areas of the country and they look at their, uh, their social media posts like on Facebook or on Twitter or on Instagram, they look where people are posting and they look at what are the words that they use. And based on the words and the commentary that's going on, can they predict different degrees of well-being? They actually did this and they overlap the map against the CDC's map of people who had heart attacks. And it was almost an exact match when they looked at people who had very negative words or very aggressive words, like lots lots of swearing, and they overlapped this kind of negativity map and laid it up against heart disease, and it was almost like a perfect match. Well, what happened in something completely separate, they also have what's called the American Communities Project, and they divided the country into 20 communities. And these include big cities, small cities, evangelical hubs, African-American South. They called Raying America, military posts. Well, one of them was called LDS Enclaves, E-N-C-L-A-V-E-S, LDS Enclaves. And what that means is where are there just a whole bunch of Mormons living, okay? Like Utah and Idaho. So what they did is they took the World Wellbeing Project and looked at components of life satisfaction. And you look at components of life satisfaction and you list out, you rank order these 20 different communities who's on top. The LDS enclaves is in top. They did the same thing with happiness. They looked at happiness right on top, LDS enclaves. They then looked at stress. Who's right on top? Elias Enclaves. And <laughs> they looked at worry. Who's right on top? Elias Enclaves. And I was at the conference of the International Positive Psychology Association World Congress. It was held in Montreal back in 2016. I was there. This figure goes, there's something going on with the Mormons. They're the <laughs> happiest and have life satisfaction. They're also the most stressed out and worried. What is going on? And the audience was guffawing over that. And that was really funny. Well, here is my take on this. And this is my interpretation is if you look in the research, there is an association between meaning and having anxiety or having stress or worry. And it's because it reminds me of Jacob in the Book of Mormon, where he's talking to his followers and saying, my heart is just so anxious. My soul is anxious for you. Well, 
we know that Jacob had to have been a happy guy in other parts of his life because when Enos went out to pray in the forest, he remembered his father talking about the joy of the saints. So the joy of the saints must have been something he talked about enough for his son to remember it. But yet here is Jacob saying, I have this anxiety. So what I believe is that bringing the gospel to the world, bringing salvation to the world, what greater meaning could you have than that? And fortunately can produce some unnecessary stress and worry. The other thing too, is a lay church. They have a regular jobs, regular careers. They have their families and they're running the primary. They're running the bishopric. They're running the Relief Society. They're leading the music. They're playing the organ. And so that can add some stress and worry just being able to get done. So, Yeah. And members, they care so much about what they believe and what it means for their life. And they worry about the gospel being the meaningful focus in their families because we want to help and we want to save the world. I mean, those are anxious concerns, but also heartfelt concerns. Yeah, absolutely. If you want, I know I talked about religion in general, a little bit about the church in particular, but there's a couple of things I thought would be important, you know, before our time is all up that are specific to the LDS church as an organization and to the gospel that are unique amongst all the types of religion that I think is extremely important to know. And it's part of these, you're sitting at a banquet table. Let's take off some of these lids. And the first thing I thought I'd mention is the organization of the church is absolutely brilliant. And it's crucial to realize that how organization is structured impacts the people in that organization. I got my MBA a long time ago. My emphasis was in organizational behavior and my undergrad was in human resource development. So I'm really attuned to notions of organizations. And if you look at how the church is structured, it is structured geographically. You attend the ward where you live. Now, what is brilliant about that is it forces us to live the gospel because you can't choose your neighbors. You can't choose who is in your word boundaries. And so you're not moving and they're not moving. And so you got to figure it out and learn how to get along. And isn't that what the gospel is all about? Now, if it's not like that, if we can just go to church wherever we want to, then where would we go? We would go hang out with people that are just like us. We would go hang out with people that we're comfortable with. They're in our comfort zone. Well, this structure of the church forces us to get outside of our comfort zone. It forces us to interact with people of a different socioeconomic strata or people who have a different political viewpoint than we do. And so I cannot emphasize enough how important the structure of the church is. And that it is a lay church that by accepting different callings, we grow and develop. In my computer, I have a little folder for all the callings. When I get a calling, I have a little folder and all the things I have to do relative. Well, I have like 20 folders of things I've had to learn how to do. And many of the skills and the competencies I have now as a grown adult that I develop just by simply saying yes to a calling. And whether I knew what in the heck I was doing or not, I just said yes to it. And I jumped in and tried to learn and figure it out. 
And now I have tons of competencies that I got just from saying, yes, I'll do a calling. And we are unique in that way too, in our church faith, where we have this lay clergy, we're all volunteers and you end up interacting with a lot of different people with different personalities. And you do have to kind of learn to adapt and work together. And we develop a lot of incredible leadership skills in this church. I was talking today with a couple of friends of mine that were here for lunch and we're saying, you know, what other church has a five-year-old giving a talk in primary or, you know, a 12-year-old speaking in front of the entire congregation of their church or planning a ward party for 250 people and like knocking it out with three other people within a couple of weeks. I mean, people have other face, they can't even believe that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's incredible. Yeah. So that's how, you know, as an organization, it is really just brilliant. And then I guess I already alluded to these, but having agency. Here's what's really important is in the research that looked at behavior change and how do we change our behavior? How do we improve ourselves? And the latest research that I was reading about is they kind of pretty much said anything can work as long as there is an element of autonomy involved, as long as there is an element of agency. There's an element of choice. What the gospel is about is having choice. And isn't that what Eve did in the Garden of Eden? She brought us choice. And tiny little sidetrack here, but there's a, in the appendix about Eve and how our belief about Eve is so vastly different than the world's. But we have a choice and autonomy. And that is just so crucial to improving and, and we're just surviving or doing well in life. Well, do you have any closing thoughts on the aspects of the LDS church that lead to an increase in happiness? Yes. Well, just knowing that the components of the church and of the gospel, the church as a structure and the gospel and religion in general, there is so much overlap between that and well-being and these major theories of well-being. It is massive and it's huge. We've just scratched the surface on looking at looking at these things. And so I would just say that I try to live life from a yes and standpoint. I know that some people don't like that, but I like yes and. Yes, the church is fabulous in its structure, in its teachings. And there are some problems. There are things that happened that shouldn't have happened. There are things that go wrong and that went wrong that need to be addressed. You can flip it around. Yes, there are lots of things wrong with what, with different elements of the church that people can find and iterate and list out. Yes, that is absolutely true. And there are many, many, many components of the church as an organization and the gospel of Christ, which are so beautiful and phenomenal. So I feel that if you can hold a yes, and there's things I am unhappy about with the church, and I acknowledge those, and I will share those when it's appropriate to do so in very pointed terms. But I also know that there is so much good in the gospel as a structure and this church is a structure and it's incomprehensible how much good there is in the gospel. 
Beautifully said. I mean, it's not perfect, but every faith has their own issues. I mean, I think there is a value add by having a community, having an organization, <laughs> having engagement and relationships and meaning and a code of health, like the word of wisdom that protects us from addiction. There are so many benefits. So I loved our discussion today. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate the important research you've done. I appreciate the time that you spent enlightening us about this intersection of the restored gospel of Christ and positive psychology. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the What Now podcast. We invite you to leave a positive rating and written review, which really helps our podcast to grow. All you have to do is subscribe to the What Now podcast and scroll down the episodes and you'll see where you can leave a positive rating and written review. We also invite you to create positive change by sharing this episode with family, friends, and anyone you think it might help. Just click on that share button wherever you listen to podcasts. I invite you to follow us on Instagram at podcast what now. That's at podcast what now for daily inspirational messages. We never say goodbye. We say what now? This has been a What Now podcast production.